Now then, with a view to the blessing of God, let's turn to the the book of Joel again. And the children can go out. I should have said that at this point to the Sabbath school. Let's turn to uh, Joel and chapter 2, sorry, I think I said 3, but chapter 2. And at verse 25. So I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the crawling locust, the consuming locust, and the chewing locust, my great army which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied. And praise the name of the Lord your God, who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never be put to shame. Then you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel. I am the Lord your God, and there is no other. My people shall never be put to shame. We'll try to uh, cover these verses both uh, this morning and tonight, particularly focusing on restoration. In verse 25, so I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. I will restore. Now, again, just uh, very briefly by way of introduction, uh, in our studies on Joel's prophecy, we've seen uh, God sending his army of locusts upon the nation of Judah and upon the church. And we've seen the connection between such a natural disaster on them and the natural disaster that's come upon ourselves. And we've also seen that the people were slow to recognize this disaster as being in a special way from God. And so God raises Joel Uh, to tell the priests, to tell the people that this chastisement is indeed from God or that this is indeed a chastisement from God. And following that, we saw the call to repentance which followed it, a call which came with two trumpet blasts. Now, again, Joel is appointed to tell the priests to blow the trumpets He gives them the content of what they're to proclaim, but it's the priests that need to proclaim it. The first blast of the trumpet was to call the people together, to assemble together in the houses of God, perhaps even throughout the land. The second blast of the trumpet was to call them to humble themselves. And really it's at verse 12 in this chapter itself, that we come uh, to the heart of what the book is about. Now, therefore, says the Lord, and this is the verse, I suppose, that we most need to take with us. Now, therefore, says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. So rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God. Now, we saw 
uh, last time too, that part of this repentance or turning to God involved a persuasion that God would actually hear them and receive them. That's a very important part of repentance. In fact, repentance is not really possible without it. We need to be persuaded that God is willing to receive us. And again, that's emphasized here in the text. Just where I stopped reading there, I stopped reading deliberately in verse 13. So rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God for. Why? He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and he relents from doing harm. So we're encouraged there to to turn to God, not so much because of what God does, but because of who he is. He takes delight in forgiveness. And if judgment is called in the Bible God's strange work, then mercy is the work in which he delights. And it's this gracious call, this gracious response of God, sorry, this gracious response of God to our repentance that dominates the rest of the book. And it's what I want to uh, look at or to begin looking at with you this morning. God's gracious response to our repentance. Uh, Your repentance can sometimes be sluggish. You can say, well, I'm perhaps a little afraid of devoting myself more fully to God in case somehow God doesn't respond. Perhaps I I am going to be left as I am. And if I am left as I am, my condition is worse than before I humbled myself because that then makes me conclude that God isn't really interested in me. Uh, How can I How can I have the encouragement to repent? Will God definitely renew me? Will he revive me? Will he give me a sense of his presence? Will he enliven me? And so on. Now, God's gracious response begins with deliverance. It begins with deliverance. You'll notice that he takes the evil away. We're told in verse 20, and God himself is the speaker here, so God says, I will remove far from you the northern army and will drive him away into a barren and desolate land with his face towards the eastern sea and his back towards the western sea. His stench will come up and his foul odor will rise because he has done monstrous things. Now, sometimes, um, and if you, if you do read a commentary, I'm sure you all have a commentary of some kind in your house, some will uh, tell you that the army from the north here must be another army and not the locust army because the locusts usually come from the south. And so some people think that the prophecy here has moved from considering locusts to considering the Assyrians or the Babylonians who would come later. Uh, because they do, incidentally, always come from the north. But I don't think we should take it like that. Um, Because in the first place, the locusts can come into the Holy Land from the north. 
And in the second place, we should remember that even if these locusts are locusts, which they are, the locusts are locusts, they still do remind us that God has other enemies too. And that these locusts are a forewarning or a foreshadowing of worse to come if the people don't acknowledge why they're there and repent accordingly. So, in other words, if the people don't respond to the famine, God will send a sword. Which reminds us that uh, God's uh, chastisements, as I've said before, are graded. They always increase. If we don't listen to God whispering, God shouts. If we don't listen to God shouting, he will smite. If we don't listen to his smiting or his striking, God will devour from the moth to the lion. So God grades his chastisement. So bad as this affliction of locusts feels and looks, it's not really as bad as things could get. If they respond, God will take them away. If they don't respond, either they themselves would come back or God will send something worse. The Assyrians are worse than the locusts. Now, of course, um, that is true with ourselves too. Uh, God may indeed remove this scourge from our own midst, or he may not. Everyone is confident that the vaccine will work. It may indeed, and we hope and pray it does, but it may not. Something else may come in its place, something much worse, if we have not turned and called upon the name of God. And there's no doubt since all this began that that is one of the things that we've been looking for in ourselves, I hope, in our congregations and in our churches and in our land. We've been waiting for people to call upon the name of the Lord, especially those who rule over us. And isn't it still a shattering disappointment that we don't hear it? There is not a word still of God, not in our Scottish Parliament, not in the Parliament of the United Kingdom, and not, as far as I'm able to tell, from the monarch herself. Nothing. It seems to me that lesser things than this in the past caused people to mention God. But now this, in all its severity, brings no mention. At one level, it's no surprise. Because if we're alert to the times and reading the signs of the times, the times are bad. And sometimes living in them immunes you to how bad they actually are. But there has been a deluge of iniquity in the country, an absolute deluge of iniquity, legislated for, provided for, and protected right at the top, not just in the state, but sadly in many churches too. But we must recognize that it's there. And still, in that respect, it's no surprise. But in another way, it is. Is there nothing left amongst our leadership at all? Is there no sense of God? No sense of responsibility? No sense of how in the past our nation did call upon God in times of distress and how God signally intervened? To the point where even worldly people said, well, it's strange that there was a corporate day 
of national humiliation and prayer, and such an event then happened? No, it's as though these things had never been. And so it's strange to me that any of us should just accept that the world will go back to normal or that things will get better and better, better than they ever were before, when we have not humbled ourselves. We have not called a fast. We have not torn our garments. We have not torn our hearts instead of our garments and turned to the Lord. But here, the people have done that. And this second chapter, or the second half of the second chapter, assumes that people will respond with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and with turning to the Lord with all their hearts. And the result of that is that God does take the northern army away. Not the Assyrians, not the Babylonians, but simply the locusts. The same wind of judgment that took the locusts upon his people is the same divine wind now that takes the locusts away. <laughs> the winds are in the hand of God. Fire, hail, clouds, wind and snow, whom in command he keeps, he unleashes as it pleases. He unleashed to inflict, and now he unleashes the wind to take the affliction away. Just as the virus is in the hand of God to release and to withdraw, so the locust is in the hand of the Lord to release and to withdraw. This time the locusts are taken and they're pushed from the north to the south towards the Dead Sea, away from the Mediterranean, and they are piled up dead and stinking. If you refer to some books of uh, geography and history, you'll see people who have witnessed uh, piles of locusts after a locust plague uh, piled up with a terrible stench from them. And we are told here in verse 20 that God does that. His stench will come up at the end of the verse and his foul odor will arise because he has done monstrous things. Or in the King James Version, great things. I think it's translated monstrous here to convey the idea that, well, we normally associate great with something good. Uh, so I think they've used the word monstrous to carry the idea that the great thing they did was an evil thing. Perhaps the word terrible catches it because the locust has done a terrible thing. Now, it may seem strange to speak of the locusts here as though they were moral beings. Uh, God speaking of them as, as insects that have done monstrous or terrible things. But... Um, the evil doesn't lie in the locust itself as though it had an intention to destroy God's people. That's an absurdity. The evil lies in the fact that even as inanimate creatures, they were afflicting the people of God, which would never happen in an ordinary sinless world. But here they are afflicting the Lord's people. And by using this language, God is showing us, by venting his displeasure upon the locust, he is showing us how reluctant he was to use the locust to strike his people in the first place. I mean, we're never, I suppose there are some parents in this world who are chastisement happy. 
they are very quick to inflict chastisement upon children. There are other parents who are on the opposite side. They never really do so at all. Uh, God does afflict chastisement, and he does it because with respect he has to. That is his own uh, way of dealing with us. But whenever he smites, he is reluctant to smite. He does not, as the scripture says, willingly afflict the children of men. That is why when he uses the locust to afflict his people, he shows his displeasure by piling them up dead and stinking. He took no pleasure in using them on his people. Now, I think it's important to remember that you think because God chastises that God takes pleasure in his chastisement. As though, as though God somehow delights in your pain, in your grief, or whatever kind of thing that he is putting you through. But he takes no delight in the thing considered in itself at all. He would never touch you, never touch you, were it not for your good, were it not for your well-being. And we need to lay hold of that and to remember it. Um, if you turn back, just keep your finger or a ribbon or something where you are at the moment. But if you turn back to Isaiah and uh, chapter 10, it's worth turning to it. Um, if it's not convenient for you, just stay where you are at Joel and uh, just listen simply to what I say. But if it's convenient, uh, turn to Isaiah 10. Um, I, I mentioned a moment ago that the locusts would be followed by Assyrians or Babylonians, whatever, whatever is needful in the Lord's hand. And, uh, of course, the Assyrians were raised by God, and um, they were raised to afflict Israel, to bring Israel to her senses. Now, if you look at Isaiah 10, it's page 794, page 794. And verse 5. Now listen to what God says here. God is the speaker. Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger. So he's comparing Assyria to a chastising rod in his own hand. That's, what, that's how I'm using this great country. This is quite astonishing, by the way, when you think about these things. Because here you have an empire, an Assyrian empire... And all its aggression is being used by God. God is using it to accomplish his own purpose. Think of that in modern times too. He's using the nations and their aggression. The rod of my anger and the staff in whose hand is my indignation. So the wrath of Assyria is actually God's wrath against his own people. The two wraths are not the same. They're very, very different. Assyria's motives are different from God's, but the fact is that Assyria's wrath is an expression of God's wrath. Verse 6, I will send him, that's the Assyrian, so God is going to send the Assyrians against an ungodly nation. Now that's what he's calling his own people. This is amazing. I mean, Assyria, Assyria itself is the most ungodly nation. But he's actually sending Assyria against his own people, which he calls an ungodly nation. 
and against the people of my wrath, I will give him charge. I'm giving him license to seize the spoil, to take the prey, and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. Now, here we're led to the difference in motive. Verse 7, yet he does not mean so. That's not the Assyrian's purpose. The Assyrian isn't saying, oh, I'm coming to do God's work here by smiting you. By persecuting the church, I'm doing God's work persecuting the church. That's not how the Assyrian thinks. Nor does his heart think so. But it is in his heart to destroy and cut off not a few nations. For he says, are not my princes altogether kings? And so on. Then go down to verse 12. Therefore it shall come to pass, when the Lord has performed all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem. Now, what is that work? Well, it's his work of chastisement. When God has used the Assyrians to do what God wants them to do, he will then say, let's read on, I will punish the fruit of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the glory of his haughty looks. For he says, by the strength of my hand I have done it, and by my wisdom, for I am prudent, and so on. And in verse 15, God rebukes the foolishness of that. Shall the axe boast itself against him who chops with it? I mean, of course, the it's an absurd thing that the axe should boast. It's the hand of the person who wields the axe that boasts. So God is saying, why should Assyria boast? It's my hand that uses her. Shall the saw exalt itself against him who saws with it? As if a rod could wield itself against those who lift it up, or as if a staff could lift up as if it were not wood. Therefore the Lord, the Lord of hosts, will send leanness among his fat ones. And under his glory, the Lord will kindle a burning. This is, he's burning the glory of these nations. He's going to take it to nothing because the, the burning glory of the Lord is greater than their glory. So the light of Israel will be a fire and his holy one, a flame. It will burn and devour his thorns and his briars in one day. Uh, who knows what agency God uses to persecute the church? Governments are increasingly persecuting the church. And they are doing that according to their own wisdom. And they think it's in their own power. But they are in the hand of the Lord. They're in the hand of the Lord. God may use them to smite you and to smite me. But when he's finished with them, he'll break them. At least Israel was not broken. Judah was not destroyed, but the Assyrians were destroyed. And can I counsel you in that respect, whoever you are, to be very careful how you deal with the Lord's people. You, you may sometimes think that you can prosper by speaking against them, saying hard things against them, treating them badly because you think they're pushovers and they won't retaliate against you. You can use your own strength like that and show yourself to be superior to them until the Lord comes and works on their behalf. And one day, one day he will come and work on their behalf. And if you haven't been reconciled to God yourself, he'll break you. 
and he'll show you that what you did was something that he merely permitted you to do, but it was your evil that did it, as it was the Assyrians' evil here. God is not evil in allowing them. The evil is entirely theirs. But when judgment comes, he will break those who afflict his people. They are the apple of his eye. Be careful how you think about them, how you speak about them, how you deal with them. And that includes his prophets. Touch not the prophets. Touch not mine anointed and do my prophets no harm, says the Lord. So God is going to remove the affliction from his people. But there's more to this than deliverance. In fact, much more. The, the theme of the second half of the chapter, in fact, is not so much deliverance, but restoration, which is a lot deeper and a lot further than deliverance. I will restore the years that the swarming locust, the crawling locust, the consuming locust, and the chewing locust have eaten. And when you read of God's restoration here in the passage, it's striking how full and how generous the restoration is. It's not as though things are just going back to normal. In fact, because the people have repented, there is a kind of fullness and a generosity coming to them that eclipses any expectation that they could have had. Now, I think there's two reasons for that, and they have to be distinguished. The first reason is this, that part of the restoration spoken of in this chapter doesn't have to do with what God's going to do for them there and then. It has to do with what God is going to do for them as a nation a long time distant in the future. Now, it's true they don't know exactly how far distant it's going to be, but the fact of the matter is that one day in the future, God is going to massively restore them. He's going to restore them just now. He's going to restore them graciously and superabundantly just now, but that is as nothing in comparison with a future national restoration that God has for them. And that breaks in in verse 28 of Joel 2. And it shall come to pass, God says, that afterwards, now it turns out that this is hundreds of years afterwards, in fact, this takes us down to just around about 30 AD. It shall come to pass afterwards that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And also on my men servants and on my maidservants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. Now, if you know your scripture well, you'll recognize that these words appear again in the New Testament. They appear on that great day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was poured out upon the New Testament church, inaugurating what we could rightfully call the age of the Spirit in which we now live. It, he initially came in the form of fiery tongues, which sat on the heads of the apostles. 
This is the advent of the Spirit, and he revealed himself through signs and wonders, but especially in the proclamation of the gospel. Now, when that happened, Peter uh, quoted these very words from Joel. He says, this is that which was written, referring back hundreds of years to the prophecy of Joel. It shall come to pass that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and so on. Now, um, in a way, that's understandable. If, if you cast your mind back to uh, when we were looking at the earlier part of Joel, you'll remember that it spoke of the day of the Lord. On three occasions in chapter 1, there is a mention of the day of the Lord. And you'll remember that the reason was essentially this, that the advent of the locust plagues were themselves a day of judgment, a day of the Lord, but they were foreshadowing a greater day of judgment and a greater day of the Lord that would follow. And in fact, there are several days of the Lord which lead ultimately to the last great day of judgment, which is the day of the Lord when history is brought to a close. So it shouldn't be a surprise to us then that God's restoration of his people here now would also be foreshadowing restorations to come, which culminate in the, in the greatest restoration, which will take place in world history when the Jewish people return and when the Lord, through them and using them, pours out his blessing upon the whole earth ushering in a millennial glory, which the prophets foresee here. Uh, in other words, well, there are many restorations in the experience of the church that have been times of restoration, times of blessing. When God takes away um, afflictions and judgments and, and pours out, he just lavishes out his blessing. But that will be the greatest to come when his people, his ancient people, return back to their own tree, when they're re-engrafted into the original stock, and through them, God blesses Jew and Gentile alike. So it's no surprise that this prophecy of the renewal breaks out into a renewal to come. Now, you, you may say to yourself, well, in what way does a, a future renewal give God's people encouragement in the present? Well, in the Bible, it's often like that. When God was comforting his people through Isaiah, the prophet, in the days of King Ahaz, when the Assyrians were again threatening, um, God told Isaiah to ask King Ahaz for a sign of God's help, and Ahaz wouldn't. That was a sin on Ahaz's part. But Isaiah said, I'll give you a sign. A virgin shall be with child. That's 800 years in the future. But a messianic prophecy was going to comfort the church in her day. And the fact is that the same thing holds true for us too. I mean, if I was going to grant you a promise that if we turn today, God will turn to us tomorrow, that would really gladden our hearts. But, but if I told you, irrespective of that, that at some point in the future, the world was to be greatly and richly blessed, 
in a period of millennial glory, and that that itself will one day be eclipsed by the great heavenly glory where God will be surrounded eternally with his people. You can't say that that does you no good simply because you won't see it. It does you good. It it partly does you good because you know that the good you do and the seed that you sow will bring forth fruit in God's time and in God's way. But because you're so wedded to Christ, because your interests are so much God's interests or his interests yours, you rejoice in a future glory as you would in a glory that was present for yourself. And in any case, you're going to partake of it. You know that heaven's yours anyway. And in a sense, that that almost takes away the necessity of knowing that God will bless you tomorrow. When you know that in glory, you'll be blessed forever anyway. But the prophets often encourage people with glory to come. But you'll notice that the, that the restoration here is not confined to the future. It's not confined to Pentecost, and it's, it's not confined to the new heavens and the new earth. It's right now. It's right now. There is a, a fullness now. Verse 21, don't be afraid, land, for the Lord is done marvelous thing. Then he addresses the beasts. Don't you be afraid, because the pastures are springing up and the tree bears its fruit. And then the people of God in verse 23, far from being afraid, you should be rejoicing in the Lord your God, because he is coming for you with former rain faithfully and with the latter rain in the first month. And the vats, in verse 24, shall overflow with new wine and oil. God is coming with abundance. And I think the abundance is there because God wants to show how good he is to repentant sinners. It's not as though when you repent that God just about takes you back and you come back through the skin of your teeth, as it were. I think I mentioned that in connection with the prodigal son's return home. He, he wasn't admitted and given the place of a servant. He was given a robe and a ring. He was given shoes and a feast and a fatted calf. And what's true for the prodigal son coming from death to life is true of you coming from your backsliding to God, from your your cold and distant behavior towards God and the people of God for years, coming back to God. It's not coming back to a grudging acceptance. It's not as though God says to you, well, you know, after 10 years of half-heartedness, uh, I'm, I'm just, just going to admit you in. It's not that. He will go to the extent, as we'll see later tonight, of restoring to us the years that the locust has eaten. He will give a double blessing, not simply a blessing. And uh, just as he was angry with those who afflicted us, And angry with the sins that kept us away from himself, so he lavishes kindness when we return. Now, I want to look at this present restoration with you. Before I do um, more fully, I want us to take to heart right away 
that this restoration is conditional upon repentance. You can't just jump uh, to verse 20 or 21 and then read through as though God had not said, consecrate a fast and call a sacred assembly, as though God had not said, turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and tear your hearts and not your garments. The, the, the fact of the matter is that all this blessing assumes that turning. And it's vain to look for one without the other. And if I'm not mistaken, that there's many a Christian and many a church and many a congregation that is crippled because you are looking to God to do something that God expects you to do yourself. Now, it's a, it's a terrible thing to expect ourselves to do what God alone can do. It's also a terrible thing to expect God to do what he calls us to do himself. We cannot expect the blessing without the turning. Make sure you keep that order right in your head. But it's no surprise in a way that God takes away the affliction and restores us. The temporal sufferings that we had in the chastisement were due to sin. And so on repentance, God will take them away. The sufferings that you had were a kind that God could take away. Um, restoration doesn't always take away what you lost. This is a bit of a difficult theme in a way, but there are some kinds of losses that can't be restored. I remember uh, Samson. I'll, I'll come back to Samson just a, a, in a moment, but... I remember being in a fellowship not long after I was converted, actually, and this question was being discussed in the fellowship. You know, does God give you back everything you've lost? And uh, an elder said in the fellowship that Samson got his strength back, but he didn't get his sight back. His two eyes were gone. And he was making the point that we, we do lose things that we don't get back. And that is true. I think several factors come into that and be, I think, too much of a digression. Maybe the, the extent to which you have sinned, uh, the extent to, which, extent to which you are maybe brought dishonor upon the Lord's cause or whatever it is. Or, but there are some things we don't get back. But there are many things we do get back. And when we repent, we expect restoration and we expect spiritual blessing. And um, you'll notice that, the, that the, the blessings here about um, the pasture springing up and the tree bearing its fruit and the former rain and the latter rain, these things are not simply what they are, although they are what they are. They also symbolize the, the spiritual blessing that God is sending. The rains from heaven suddenly remind us of Malachi 3 and the windows of heaven being opened and God sending his rain down upon us. The sudden provision of wine and oil in verse 24 bring before us the joy and the gladness of the gospel. So this earth coming to life, the earth yielding its fruit like we sang of in Psalm 67, is the 
people of God coming to life, the people of God being showered with God's blessing, and the people of God being fruitful and bringing forth the wine of the fruit of the Spirit before God. Now, with the restoration, I think there are several things that we need to look at, and I just want to begin with this morning with the restoration that I think is foundational to everything else, and that is the Lord's own presence. In verse 27, then, when God makes the earth fruitful again, when the locusts are gone, and when he brings things to life, then you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, that I am the Lord your God, and there is no other. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel. Now, God being in the midst of Israel, or God being in the midst of his people, is a wonderful thing. God's presence. Now, again, the presence of God in the midst of his people here is not his omnipresence. Um, as the word tells you, God's omnipresence is everywhere. There is no place in the universe or beyond where God is not. And when the Bible speaks of God's presence, it's not, it's not speaking about that. The second sense of presence is the covenantal presence of God. That's his presence with his people. That's a presence that remains with them, irrespective of the situation that they are in. In other words, if, if the Holy Spirit dwells in you as the Spirit of Christ, then that will follow you. It will follow you down to the backsliding in Egypt. It will remain within you as you come out of Egypt. The covenantal presence of God with his people remains with them forever. Now, some people, I think, greatly err in their understanding of the Bible and in their understanding of the Christian life because they think of God's presence in only these two senses, his omnipresence and his covenantal presence. There's a third presence. The third presence, I don't really know what we could call it, simply maybe his special presence. That's what happens when God is not merely with you, but showing you his favor and shining upon you with the light of his countenance. Now, I'm conscious, I think, just a few months ago that we looked at that, but it's, it's really important to keep these distinctions in mind. The Lord showing favor by shining upon you with the light of his countenance. When, when that happens, you know the love of God. You feel the love of God in your heart. You know you are his. You know he is yours. Just as you know the sun shining in its strength. Now, of course, in the nighttime, the sun has not gone away. We know that. You can think of that as God's covenantal presence. It remains. But when the sun rises, you don't need to be explained it doesn't need to be explained to you what that means or what it involves because you see its light and you feel its warmth. Now, that's what happens when God is reconciled to his people. When you repent in your heart, when you genuinely turn back to God, you know 
the love of God for you. You you feel the heat of it in your soul, and you see the light of it in, in your in your mind. You know, you know, because his countenance is shining upon you. That's when you can say in your heart, better is thy love than life. My lips, therefore, shall praise thee. I know that your love is better than life. It's better than anything life can give me or anything I can have in life. And in the brightness of thy countenance, I ever on shall go. That's how you want to walk. It's how you want to live. Now, this countenance is what you lose by sin. And it means that God is no longer in your midst in a tangible, visible way. Covenantal presence remains. His approving presence is gone. It's gone. Sometimes you don't know it's gone because of pride. One of the things that pride does is it makes you deceive yourself into thinking that all is still well with your soul. When Samson uh, fell into his sin in the last year of his life, you'll remember famously that he gave away the secret of his strength. And uh, when Delilah cut his hair um, and they were playing this game and she would say, the Philistines are upon you. Of course, on the last occasion, the Philistines did indeed come upon him because his strength had actually gone. The scripture says there very solemnly that he did not know that the Spirit of the Lord had departed from him. He didn't know it. Now, the departure of the Lord's Spirit there from Samson is a special kind of departure. It meant that, uh, certainly, it meant that he lost his particular gift of strength. And what's more, it meant that he was going to be given over into the hands of the Philistines who were going to abuse and degrade him. And that was a chastisement from God. But the fact is that we cannot tie the departure of God's Spirit to that moment in particular uh, to say that he hadn't somehow lost it earlier because he must have lost it earlier. He must have lost the approving presence of God before the strength left him. You see, God leaves incrementally. Leaves incrementally. Just as he sometimes returns incrementally. Sometimes he puts his hand to the latch and removes it to see what your response is. But there's no doubt that prior to that terrible event when Samson knew he had lost the spirit, that he had lost the approving presence of God before it. And of course, when Israel too um, got, got, got the ark back, when the ark um, came back into the land, it came back and it was in, in the house of um, Obed-Edom for 20 years. And then we're told that Israel began to lament after the Lord. So they were living for a certain length of time thinking God was with them because the ark was in their midst. But they, they knew, they came to realize that God was not really with them. It takes a chastisement to see that God is not really with you in the way that you thought he was. That's how the chastisement of God works. 
I mean, if you think about it, we've been talking quite a bit, not just today, but before about God's chastisement. How does it actually work? Well, it makes you, first of all, taste the evil of the sin that's got you into the situation. Until that chastisement comes, you're dallying with the thing, you're dabbling with it, you're playing around with it. And you think, you think the sin is something that's giving you pleasure or it's improving your condition somehow or other. But God will take a chastisement to make you see the evil of the sin that's got you there. Now, if I'm not mistaken, it'll make you see the evil of sin generally too. But it'll especially make you sick fed up of the sin that took you there. But the other thing the chastisement does, as well as making you sick of that, is that it makes you recall what the presence of God was actually like in your life. And you know, um, when that happens, it's a precious thing. It's a precious thing to know what you want because you can recall it and you can remember what it was like. And I don't know if any of you are in this situation today where you've reached that. You've reached that point. You're starting to sicken of your sin to sicken and weary of your backsliding and the rubbish, the rubbish that has become, that has come in between you and God. And along with that, just recollections, divinely breathed recollections, not just into your mind, but into your heart. Just, well, it's like the, la- the hand of the beloved coming through the latch. It's, it's like a recollection of what he looks like, a recollection of what communion was, I mean general communion with God, what it was like to know his approving countenance in life, just to know day by day that the love of God is upon you. Not because you had to learn it, not because you had to remind yourself of a truth of systematic theology, but because you knew it. The Spirit of God bore witness with your spirit in those days that you were a child of God. Do you remember that? Do you remember that, dare I say, feeling? Because it is as much a feeling as a knowledge. And as well as recalling the presence of God, of course with it, you are desiring the presence of God. Um, Let me read to you just a a couple of verses about what, what God himself says about chastising his people in the in the old testament um in deuteronomy and 31 um god said to moses just before moses death he says you will rest with your fathers but this people will play the harlot with the gods of the foreigners and they will forsake me and break my covenant now listen to what god says then my anger shall be aroused against them in that day and I will forsake them, and I will hide my face from them. And they shall be devoured. Now, this is a terrible thing. And many evils and troubles shall befall them. Now, listen to this. When these troubles befall them, they will say in that day, have these evils not come upon us because our God is not among us? Notice. They are realizing that God is not with them. Oh, you know, 
what good it would do the church in Scotland today to recognize that God is not in our midst. I don't speak of every congregation. I don't speak of all Christians. But what good it would do the church in Scotland, not saying of Scotland, the church in Scotland today to realize that God is not in her midst. How good to say that these evils have come on us because God is not in our midst. I will surely hide my face in that day because of the evil that they have done in turning to other gods. Now, I've gone on longer than I will, so let me, let me just close by asking, could that be yourself? If, if I was to directly ask you a question, let me ask it. Let me ask it of yourself personally, because the church can experience things and individuals can experience things. Where are, where are you today in this connection? Can I ask you first if you are enjoying the Lord's presence in your life? Can you say that the sun of his countenance is shining upon you, you are feeling its warmth, and you are rejoicing in its light? Can you say that you rejoice daily because you know you are his and he is yours? Or is it the case that you have lost his presence, but you might be deceiving yourself into thinking that you have it? Or is it the case that you have lost it and at least know, you know you have lost it, but perhaps you're still not doing anything about it? Um, it's easy to stop short of that. Well, you have the promise that if you repent, first of all, the Lord's presence will come back into the midst into the midst of a church, and into the midst of your heart. Now that brings with it things that we're going to see tonight. Joy, praise, fruitfulness, things that God delights to restore. Let us pray. O Lord, our God, we pray to value your presence and uh, surely valuing it will be a, a sign that we know it. And uh, it is good for us, at least, if we recognize ourselves to be in the dark. And we pray for any in the hearing today who may be in the grip of a backsliding of some kind over whose souls are Darkness has spread, perhaps for many years, a gradual fading of light and being almost entirely overwhelmed by the dark. We pray, Lord, that they would recognize that there is restoration for themselves and that that begins with the Lord resuming his rightful place as Lord and King. Oh, with your presence, may everything else flow in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Now let's um, close our worship reading Psalm 126.
This again is about the restoration of Zion herself. Again, looking back to a previous restoration when God turned back the bondage of Zion. And in verse 4, there's a prayer for another restoration and a promise that those who sow in tears will enjoy a reaping time of joy. Uh, the whole psalm will hear sung to the tune Denfield. When Zion's bondage was turned And to receive God's blessing. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. <clears throat>